Um, please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah, two books to the left of Matthew. Two books to the left of Matthew. And this morning we will be studying the entire 10th chapter. Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord God, you sent your son and he was wounded for our transgressions and he bore our iniquities and he was crushed and despised of men, stricken, smitten and afflicted on our behalf, not because of some sin he had done. He was the sinless, spotless lamb of God, but because of our iniquity, the the cross is not the symbol of our worth, but of our wretchedness. The cross is not the symbol of our value, It's the symbol of how great our sin and how great our offense to you was of what was needed to remove it. It is the symbol of your love and your compassion and your faithfulness and your salvation. And so, Lord, as we study this chapter and we look at your great love for your people, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would comfort the afflicted, but that you would afflict the comfortable. Your word would do what it always does to wound, to break down, but to build up and to heal. So, Lord God, come now and have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the earliest truths that most children learn if they go to Sunday school or Awana is summed up in the simple phrase, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay. But it's a profound truth, isn't it? Uh, We have a little children's book um, that John and Noel Piper put out. It's called Most of All, Jesus Loves You. And it goes through to your children, mommy and daddy love you, and brother and sister love you, and grandma and grandpa love you, and aunt and uncle love you. But most of all, Jesus loves you. And, And there's a reason that needs to be emphasized is so often... We can struggle with those questions. Yes, yes, we know God loves us. Yes, yes, we know God has good plans for us. But right now, honestly, it, it, it doesn't feel that way. Right? right now, honestly, I feel more love, more comfort, more joy from a good movie, good sports game. I feel more security and safety from the money in my bank, from my friends, than I do from the living God. And so in Zechariah chapter 10, the the prophet speaking to the returned people, the the remnant that had returned from Babylon, offers more words of encouragement. You remember, that's the theme of the book, encouraging words. The name Zechariah, God remembers. Specifically, he remembers his promises. He remembers his covenants. He remembers his favor. And in this chapter, Zechariah lays out for them and encourages them with God's love for his people. The the, the theme of Zechariah chapter 10, the Lord God loves his people. We're going to see three clear evidences of God's love, three themes of his lavish love in Zechariah chapter 10. Let's read the 10th chapter. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rains, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field, for the household gods utter nonsense. 
And the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, and from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. And they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will give strength to the house of Joseph, and I will save the house to the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God. And I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine, and their children shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I'll bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I'll bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon until there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Zechariah chapter 10. As you recall, we are in the middle of the first burden of the word of the Lord. The last four chapters, starting in chapter, no, the last five chapters, I'm sorry, starting in chapter nine, comprise two burdens of the word of the Lord. This is the last and latest words from Zechariah in his prophetic career. The temple has been rebuilt. That's done. This is as much as 40 years later. And the words of the Lord are these burdens about the other nations, and it really is looking most focusedly, eschatologically, to the day of the Lord, to the events surrounding his return, to the mighty battle that will be joined when he returns, and the Messiah coming. We saw two weeks ago the text that is remembered on Palm Sunday in, in chapter 9 of, of Israel's Messiah coming humbly on a donkey in verse 9, 9, 9. But then in verse 10, envisioned as the conquering king who makes peace. And as we turn to chapter 10, it's almost as if, and I think we can wrestle with this, it's almost as if all of these prophecies of what's coming down the pike, the, the prophecy of Alexander the Great coming and, and leaving them alone, the prophecy of their triumph over the, the later Greek empire and Antiochus Epiphanes, it's almost as if, and I, and I could be reading this into this, the people are saying, yeah, that's great for the future, but right now, we need rain. Right now, we have needs. Right now, we're anxious. Right now, we don't know where our next meal is coming from. I think that might explain 
why the sudden shift in chapter 10. It links also these promises of the kingdom conditions. If you read through your Old Testament, this kingdom that's promised for Israel will have economic prosperity. Chapter 9 ending with, look at verse 16 of chapter 9. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for the jewels for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land for how great is his goodness and how great is beauty grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. We're picturing a time where there's a abundant harvest in Israel so much so that there's leisure time the young men and the young women are making merry. This is this is a picture of the promised kingdom benefits. And then in in chapter 10, verse 1, and now we move into our first of three points, we're going to see that the Lord will bless his people, not just in the future, but now. Not just in the eschaton, not just in the latter days, but now. The Lord will bless his people. In fact, in this entire chapter, the only exhortation and command given to Zechariah's audience is found right here in the first verse. This is it. For, for immediate application. And it's the very first word in the ESV. Ask. It's a good word. Ask. Rain from the Lord in the seasons of the spring rain, and the Lord will make the storm, who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. And we see, firstly, the power of prayer. Uh, what, what, what he's saying is not only has God promised to Israel this, this latter prosperity, but under the Mosaic Covenant, at any point in time where Israel is being faithful, at any point in time where Israel is, is by faith attempting to please and serve God, that God has promised them these things. If you're a farmer, and, and most of the uh, Israelites are either herdsmen or farmers, you're dependent on rain. You can work, you can till the ground, you can take the, the sheep and the goats out to pasture, but without rain, there's nothing that grows, and if there's nothing that grows, there's nothing to feed the sheep. And so you're constantly living in, in Israel, fully aware that all your work and all your labor still ultimately depends upon God. Now, I would suggest to you, nothing has changed for us. We're just not nearly as aware of it. Right, But if you're living as an Israelite, you're, you know if it don't rain, <laughs> all the plowing and all the work is, is going to come to naught. And so there's constantly this anxiety. Now again, it's the same thing's true here. We can get pink slips. We can get laid off. Things can happen that we aren't ready for. But they, they're much more aware of it. And so in this promise of end times prosperity, Zechariah turns to them right here and right now, a faithful believing Israel, and just says, look, you guys just got to ask. You just have to ask. The power of prayer. James 4, you know, this says, you have not because you don't ask. And here, just ask. Now this this promise of rain for the crops is not a universal promise for all people in all times. There are many, I'm sure, Iowa farmers who wish it was. But the New Testament, Jesus says things like, your father will give you what you need. Ask for him for our daily bread, we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. There are corresponding promises for the church. But so often, the first point is stopping to ask. We get so anxious, we get so worried, we get so caught up in what we have to do, we don't stop and pray. 
Oh, a favorite quote I, I know of Martin Luther, his, his regular habit was to get up and spend two hours in prayer in the Word every day, and he had a particularly busy week coming up, and one of his friends said, so Martin, are you still going to get up and pray for two hours? And Luther said, oh no, with a week this busy, I'm going to get up and spend four hours in prayer in the Word. That's the right attitude. Jesus went out and spent the entire night in prayer before gathering his apostles and disciples. We're to ask him, notice he says, in due season, which is another significant point. What that means is they're not asking for next year's rain. They're not even asking for next season's rain. They're asking in due season. It means that they're being faithful, preparing the land, tilling the soil, getting everything ready, and it's not until when they need it that they're asking the Lord for it. We can, again, get caught up with with burdens and concerns and worries about tomorrow. And the Lord Jesus says, listen to this. Listen to this connection between Matthew 6. It's in the notes here. Matthew 6 and Lamentations 3. Jesus, in Matthew 6, 34, says this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus is saying... It's really easy for us to start broadcasting all the things that are coming down the pike to us. Really, just worry about what's right in front of you. And listen to the corollary then in Lamentations 3. And you know this verse. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. What that means is, you put those two together, Jesus says there's enough trouble for today, but there's a fresh grace and mercy for today. Today, you get that? Jesus says, hey, sufficient is the trouble for the day. So every day, there's a new measure of trouble. But every day, there's a new measure of grace. I want you to get this. The danger, the futility of trying with today's grace to bear the imagined weight of tomorrow's trouble. God hasn't given you enough grace today to bear tomorrow's trouble. His mercies are new every morning. And here he says, in season, ask for the rain. At the appropriate time. Now is the time when we need rain, so now is the time we're going to ask God for rain. Another implication here is that they're still working. The other opposite extreme are people who don't do any preparations. They don't do any work. They just, we're just going to pray. Just give it up to God. Reminds me of the story of the young man seeking um, uh, the father of a woman's um, permission to marry her. And he meets and he sits down with the father. And and the father says, okay, um, do you have a job? No, sir. No, sir. Okay, Um, do you have a plan for how you're going to provide? He says, well, God will provide. And what about a plan for how you're going to pay your your rent or your mortgage? God, God will provide, says the young man very earnestly. What about food? What about food? How are you going to eat? God will provide, the young man said even more confidently. Well, at the end of this interview, the father was not very impressed. He went back and talked to his wife, and she said, how'd it go? He said, well, I got good news, and I got bad news. She said, well, okay, give me the, give me the bad news first. Husband said, well, our young son-in-law-to-be is a real knucklehead. The good news is he thinks I'm God. <laughs> um, some of you were laughing a little too hard at that. That's okay. Uh, that God expects us to do our part to work. They're asking for the rain. They're not saying, Lord, would you plow the fields and make it rain? They're, 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 they're clearly assumed to be doing their bit in this. But then the parts they don't have control over, the parts that God is sovereign over, they're asking for. They're asking in faith. James telling us that if we ask, we'll receive. 
If we ask, we'll receive. And he will give you what you need. Now, they're, they're asking under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, but we have similar promises. Just listen to Luke 12, 27 to 31. This is, again, Jesus. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more we clothe you? Well, you have little faith. Do not... Seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So God says, look, ask. Don't worry, ask. Ask me, and I'll give you the things you need. I'll give them to you in season. I will provide for you. I care for you. Because, of course, the temptation, the assumed temptation with the emphasis in God caring for his people is, well, maybe God doesn't really care for me. Maybe God doesn't really love me. And we might be tempted to think that because there might have been times we asked for things and his answer was no. You understand a loving parent can do that, right? My, my kids, can I not have dinner tonight and just have dessert? Any, any child ever ask something similar to that or is it just me? What's, what would be the loving response be? No. Can I stay up all night? No. There's plenty of times a loving parent has to say no. And we ask things for God. God, can I get this raise? God, can you, can you give me this thing that I want? And God in love says no. And our temptation after that happens a couple times is I, maybe, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he isn't gonna care for me. Maybe I gotta look out for myself. And, and that's why in verse 2, it shifts then to the folly of turning to idols. The folly of turning to idols. On the one hand, here's this abundant promise. Look, ask in prayer. Ask in season, and God will give you the things you need. He knows what you need. And then he highlights the folly of turning somewhere else. For, verse 2, the household gods utter nonsense. The diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep that are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And the, the implied logic is this. Here's this promise from God, but clearly, in the past at least, the people didn't believe it. You may wonder why Israel was all constantly going after and worshiping the Ashtaroths and the Baals and all these other gods. It all boils down to the same things it boils down to now, and that's economics. You see, Israel, it wasn't as much that Israel was uh, believing that God wasn't God, but they believed these demons, these other gods, had powers. The, the, the technical term for this is henotheism, one big, great big God and then a bunch of lesser gods. And so it wasn't when Israel went after Baal or Ashtaroth and worshipped on the high hills and under every tall tree. It wasn't fundamentally that they stopped believing Yahweh was God. It was just that Yahweh may well be God, but Ashtaroth can make it rain and we need some rain right now. Right now, or we need kids, especially in an agrarian society. Um, children, you just read the Bible, they loved, they cherished, they prized children. Give me children or I die, says Jacob's wife. And so they would go to these, these gods, quote unquote, these idols for help. The temptation, maybe God can't be trusted to give me what I want. This is the same lie in the garden, after all. You can't trust God. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. Turn to someone else. Turn to something else that will provide for you. So they turn to idols. 
The problem with idols is that they give false promises of security. They give false promises. They tell lies, this passage says. False dreams, empty consolation. And that, of course, is the temptation. You know, this world is filled with things that will promise to make you safe. That, you want to know what's a God replacement? What's an idol? A God replacement, an idol, is anything that promises to do what God alone can do. Are you scared? I can keep you safe, says money. Are you afraid of being alone? I can keep you safe, says boyfriend, girlfriend, relationship. Are you afraid of being unfulfilled and bored? I can keep you safe and fulfill you, says video games and TV and movies. You get how this works? Not that any of those things in and of themselves are wrong necessarily, but when we turn to them instead of the living God to keep us safe, to to give us what we need, to fulfill us, they become God replacements, they become idols. So we have them today. We're just more sophisticated. The Bible, of course, knows about this as well. Ezekiel 14 speaks about those who put their idols in their hearts. But whatever those things are that we're tempted to turn to instead of God, for the things we need, those become our functional idols, our God replacements. And here, the prophet is pointing out the foolishness that they may offer consolation. They may say, I can keep you safe. You'll be okay. But just like that rich fool that Jesus speaks of who built those barns and they're filled and they're stockpiled, which the modern equivalent would be he's got investments, he's got a large bank account, Jesus says, you fool. We're thinking that now you're safe. You're not safe unless you're in the hands of the living God. That's the only safe place to be. They, are, they give false promises and they bring fatal consequences. Now, the, the, the shepherding imagery introduced in the last verse, the, the, sorry, the 16th verse of chapter 9 is going to become dominant through chapter 10 and really in chapter 11. And, and here, the picture of sheep wandering. And this is, of course, referencing most recently to the Babylonian captivity. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd because the ultimate problem is Israel's shepherds are supposed to protect them from this type of idolatry, from this type of apostasy, are actually leading them in it. They were. And so the people, like a flock of sheep without a shepherd, wander and are afflicted, and they're sent to Babylon. So the first point why we can know and trust that the Lord God loves his people, because the Lord God's going to give us the things we need if we ask. The Lord is going to bless us. The New Testament says, ask. Jesus says, ask. Ask from your father. He doesn't give stones. He gives bread. He doesn't give vipers. He gives fish. Ask in faith. Ask in season. He will give you what you need. Don't turn to other God replacements who promise safety and security. Their ends will be bitter. Their consequences will be fatal. And this, this notion of the people being like a sheep without a shepherd then brings us to the next picture of God's love and concern for his people. Point two, the Lord will shepherd his flock. The Lord will shepherd his flock. Now keep your thumb here in Zechariah 10, but turn over to Ezekiel 34, a passage which you will become familiar with in the coming weeks because I really think this is the antecedent passage on picturing the people as the Lord's flock which Zechariah is building upon. We looked at this last week. We will look at Zechariah 34 again. And it's no secret that this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Zechariah, Ezekiel, sorry, Ezekiel 34. There is no Zechariah 34. 
Um, if your Bible has Zechariah 34, please get a new Bible. Um, but Ezekiel 34, the Lord will shepherd his flock. And while you turn there, I'll just read verse 3 of Zechariah. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. Which is the exact sentiment opening up Ezekiel 34. Let's just read the first seven verse, the first six verses here. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So I just want you to get the timing. Zechariah is looking back at these shepherds. Ezekiel is the prophet right before and during the captivity. So it's the same shepherds we're looking at, just one in the course of it, and then Zechariah is looking back. Here's why the people were wandering. Here's why God was angry. And then Ezekiel, while it's happening, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. And they wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search for them. You get God's anger at at false shepherds, would-be leaders of his people who instead of feeding them, get that emphasis, you don't feed the sheep. Feed themselves. I think God today is angry at would-be shepherds who rather than feeding his sheep with the milk of the word, provide for themselves. Imagine godliness as a means for gain who are busy raising money for new jets. Oh, it's happening. It's happening. And God is angry. And God's angry at, at, at false teachers of all sorts, those who would lead his sheep astray. Jesus says it'd be better for me to tie a millstone around my neck than to lead any one of you astray into sin. That's also true for you, but it's, it's true for me as well. God is angry false shepherds. We see his love for his flock by his anger at the shepherds. And then we see, and keep your thumb here in Ezekiel. So we're going back and forth between Ezekiel and Zechariah. We see that he loves his flock. He cares for and loves his flock. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. Why? For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. Do you understand that sometimes God's anger is an expression of his love? In fact, I've said this before, hell and the wrath poured out in hell is a demonstration of God's love for his son and his righteousness. It is precisely because God values his son, it's precisely because God treasures his own glory that he is angry at those who trample it underfoot and blaspheme it. In the same way, it is precisely because the Lord of hosts cares for his flock that he's angry at the false teachers and shepherds. We can take comfort in God's love for us in his anger at those who would harm his flock. We we are loved. He is angry at the false shepherds. Point B, he cares for his flock. You saw that in Ezekiel. He cares for his flock. And, And when the good shepherd shows up, the one who says, I am the good shepherd, John 10, the Lord Jesus, we we read this of him. Does he have this heart of God? You bet he has this heart of God. Listen to Matthew 9, 36 to 38. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus saw the people, and he saw them like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. Yeah, this is the one who has God's own heart. God cares for his flock. Other ways God cares for his flock, he's given the church leaders, he's given the church pastors and teachers and evangelists to equip the saints to the work of the ministry because he cares for his flock. And on this theme of shepherding then, we move to point C, he will bring forth the Messiah from Judah. He'll bring forth the Messiah from Judah. You see that in verse three. The house of Judah, and I will make them his majestic steed in battle. The, the metaphor gets moved from sheep now to a, a war horse. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler, all of them together. Now the him here is the tribe of Judah. It might be attractive to say, no, the, the him's got to be the Messiah. The cornerstone doesn't come from the Messiah. The Messiah is the cornerstone. The tent peg doesn't come from Messiah. Messiah is the tent peg. He is the battle bow. He is the king of kings. Here's the promise that God is going to strengthen and cultivate and guard the tribe of Judah such that from the tribe of Judah will come, then you fill in your fourfold description of the Messiah, the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, and from him, every ruler. Now, we're not going to go into that in detail because next week... On Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at those four messianic titles, those four descriptions of the Messiah in greater detail. Understand, we're talking about the Messiah. In the context of shepherding, one of the ways God's going to shepherd his flock is he's going to preserve and he's going to strengthen the tribe of Judah such that from the tribe of Judah comes the cornerstone, which is a messianic title. Peter and Ephesians pick it up, but listen to Isaiah 28. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, and a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. This is the Messiah. So here, get this. I'm angry at the false shepherds because they did this to my people, because I love my flock, so I'm going to strengthen the tribe of Judah so that from Judah will come the Messiah. Okay, back to Ezekiel 34, so you can see how this ties together. Because in God's zeal for his flock, he begins to make in Ezekiel 34 these lavish promises of what he's going to do. And he's going to take care of his people, and he's going to lead them, and he's going to do it, and David's going to do it. You'll see that switch over. So pick it up in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. I want you to notice the emphasis on God himself doing this. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, notice that's emphatic, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places that they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down to good grazing land on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself 
will be the shepherd of the sheep. So who's going to be the shepherd of the sheep? The Lord's going to be himself the shepherd of the sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy, and I'll feed them in justice. So you get the point. I, I, myself, God says repeatedly. I, I, myself, verse 23. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, at which point you say, okay, is it the Lord himself who's going to shepherd his flock or is it going to be David? The answer is yes. David's greater son, the Messiah, who is the Lord God himself, is the one who will care for his people, which is why, back to Zechariah 10, this notion of a languishing flock cared for by God leads naturally to God bringing forth the Messiah, the one who will, according to Ezekiel 34, shepherd God's flock. And this same Messiah, point D, will lead them. He will lead them in triumphant battle. He will lead them in triumphant battle. Verse five, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud in the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. And he'll put to shame the riders on horses. Now, we're going to look at this in greater detail, but this is not the first time that Zechariah has talked about this future battle where Israel will, led by their Messiah, trample down their foes. If you want to jump ahead for a sneak preview, you can read the second burden of the word of the Lord, chapters 12, 13, and 14. It's all there, where the Messiah's foot touches down the Mount of Olives, where Israel, at the last moment, as they're about to be destroyed and swallowed up by all the nations, he comes and he fights the blood is as high as the bridle on the horse. Oh, it's coming. God will bring forth his Messiah, and this Messiah will lead the people in triumphant battle. He will not leave his flock. So yes, in Zechariah's day, they look small. They look like a beleaguered flock. They have no king. God has given them a prophet. They're small. Their king is coming. God has not forgotten. God cares about his flock. That's the point. God cares about his flock. And his Messiah comes, and his Messiah, guess what? He cares about the flock too. And the Messiah says, I am the good shepherd. They reject him, which Ezekiel 11 and 13 predict as well. What's there in Ezekiel? Zechariah 11 and 13 predict as well. That's not here right now. The Messiah will come. He, the shepherd, will come because God cares for his flock and he will strengthen them and he will lead them in glorious battle. Point three. This all leads to the third demonstration that God loves his people. The Lord will regather national Israel. The Lord will regather national Israel. The last six verses focus on all of this and, and quickly... I want to move through these six verses asking the what, the why, and the, words failed me, like, similar to. There wasn't really a good fitting thing. So the what, the why, and the like, that's, that's what we're looking at. What are we talking about here? We're talking about messianic kingdom promises now. Clearly, we're talking about messianic kingdom promises. Point A, we're talking about a total national restoration a total national restoration. Well, why do I say that? Okay, let's look at verse three. The house of Judah. Verse six, I'll strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. Verse seven, then a frame shall become like a mighty warrior. We're naming individual tribes here. 
This, this, is, not, this is the reconstitution of the 13, 12 tribes of Israel. We'll, we'll deal with that some other time. There's, there's two half tribes, and so there's 13 tribes in the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not just picking one or two. It's the whole kit and caboodle being regathered, functioning. We've, we've seen that reference earlier in the book as well. And as we go through this passage, we'll see that emphatically. But not only is it a to- total national restoration, it's also a total relational restoration, which is probably even more significant. Look at verse 6. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. What he's saying is there was a break in our relationship. Because of their sin, I did for a time reject them. I sent them away. But when I bring them back, not only will I bring them back nationally, but more importantly, I'll bring them back relationally. It'll be like it was before, and I will hear their prayers and answer them. It's a national restoration and a total relational restoration. It's also an unprecedented economic prosperity. These are the conditions of the kingdom, a fully restored Israel, a fully relationally restored Israel, an economically prosperous Israel. Look at verse 7. Then a frame shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. And their children shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Again, we're talking about an abundance of harvest, an abundance of goods, so that there's time to rejoice. There's time to celebrate. There's time for the children to rejoice. These are all, again, emphasized over and over pictures of the economic prosperity in the kingdom where there are no droughts and there are no famines. There's time to rejoice. There's time to make merry. There's time to celebrate, just as we saw at the end of chapter 9 and verse 16, where grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine, the young women. And not just an unprecedented economic prosperity, but also an overflowing population. Look at verses 9 through 10, well, 8 through 10. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I have scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. With their children they shall live and return. I'll bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I'll bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. So many brought back, and, and also from other passages, so many children being born, that they're overflowing the boundaries of the land itself. I just want to point out to you, there is no way anything like this has yet happened. There's no way. This is future. This didn't happen in the 1940s. It certainly isn't happening now. And a part, part of this regathering may have begun to have happened in the 1940s. But the, the, the superlative language of this passage don't miss it from the farthest parts of the countries that are overflowing now that has not happened yet it may have begun possibly it may not but it has not happened these are promises that are awaiting fulfillment messianic kingdom promises that's the what what are we talking about we're talking about that israel can know god loves and cares for him he hasn't forgotten the lord god remembers that's what Zechariah means. And he's got these plans. He will bring forth the Messiah. The Messiah will bring the kingdom. They will be regathered. They will be relationally restored. They will have economic prosperity. They will be overflowing with population fertility. Well, why is God going to do this? Why would God do this? 
because of who he is. Because of who he is. Look at it, look at it in verse 6. I'll strengthen the house of Judah. I'll save the house of Joseph. I'll bring them back because I have compassion on them. Why? Because I have compassion on them. They shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God. Why is he doing this? Because he has compassion on them. Because he's the Lord their God. Because of his character. Based on point one here, his character. Based on his character. Not based on our character, not based on their character, based on his character. This is just like that, that question, why did God choose to love you and me? Why does he love Israel? Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why does God love you and me? Because the Lord God loves you and me. Isn't that a wonderful answer? Because if it depended on me, if the Lord God loved Jeremy because he's got nice glasses or whatever, well, what happens when I take the glasses off? Does he still love me? If God loves you because of something intrinsic in you, trust me, you can change. I can change. But if his love is rooted on his character and his choice, God is immutable. That love will never falter, never waver. That love is eternal. God's going to regather them. Why? Because he's going to have compassion on them. Because he's the Lord their God. What else do you think? Based on his character. Point two, because of his love and compassion. Not because we're lovely. We become lovely because we are loved by him. I said it in my opening prayer. The cross is not, as some have said, the demonstration of our value. And people, you want to put the cross upside down on its head, make the cross into something about our worth. You know, Jesus wouldn't die for trash. Jesus, the father wouldn't give up his son for garbage. Well, he did, in fact, do that. I mean, as if we want to picture the father in heaven with the scales out, my, my sinless, spotless son in whom I take infinite pleasure in these people. Oh, they're more valuable than he is. Give, that's not what happened. The cross is not the demonstration of your and my worth. The cross is the demonstration on your and my sin. These people are so repulsive, so vile, so offensive, that the second member of the Trinity needs to be brutally put to death for us to be able to stand in God's presence and not be destroyed. The cross is a demonstration of our value. That's the demonstration of our value. This is what it took for God not to do away with all of us. It's because of his love. It's because of his compassion. It's because it's who he is. He's, he loves, he saves, he delivers. And finally, the last few verses look at what this is like. Is there any antecedent that could compare this, this kingdom, this regathering that's being spoken of? Well, there is, in fact, one. It's the exodus from Egypt. Clearly, that's what's being drawn to, to mind here in the last few verses. He shall, speaking of these people coming back, verse 10, I'll bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria and I'll bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon until there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. Now we know what that's picturing, right? That's picturing the Exodus. What Zechariah is saying, because maybe you were tempted to think, well, this is really... It's big language, but a small return. You know, maybe, maybe this did get fulfilled in the 1940s. Maybe this did get fulfilled in the time leading up to Jesus coming. No. This will be big and epic and massive 
and epochal, just like the exodus from Egypt was. I mean, understand, for us, the cross is the big historic event of salvation, right? It's what we sing about, it's what we look to, it's what we celebrate, it's what we rejoice in. But for the Jews of Zechariah's day, what was the single event they went to over and over and over again to point to God's salvation and deliverance? It was the exodus, wasn't it? It's the Exodus, when God freed them from slavery, when the angel passed over them because of the blood of the lamb, when God delivered them from slavery and oppression and made a people for himself and entered into a covenant of salvation with them, when he delivered them with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. Zechariah says, the regathering will be like that. It'll be like that. Epic in scale. Not some small little trickling in thing. A miraculous and total national deliverance. Point one. What it'll be like? It'll be like the exodus from Egypt, a miraculous and total national deliverance. But not just a national deliverance. I'm going to call the worship team to come back up just while I fill this last blank in here. It's also going to be a spiritual salvation and restoration. Look at verse 12. I'll make them strong in the Lord. They shall walk in my name, declares the Lord. And this scattered through here is the spiritual salvation. We saw it earlier in the restored relationship. A restored relationship presupposes salvation and reconciliation with God. You can't have a restored relationship with God if you're not a person of faith, if you're not trusting in the Lord. He says in verse 8, I will whistle for them, for I have redeemed them. This isn't just about national Israel being reconstituted. It's about so much more. A spiritual salvation. And as we read in, in Zechariah, and we'll get there to 1210, before the Lord Jesus returns, before he fights, before any of these physical blessings come, first and foremost, there is a national conversion. There is a, a weeping and a looking over the one they have pierced. Because God, as we've said repeatedly, is only going to bless a believing people, a people of faith, a faithful Israel. And so there's a spiritual blessing here as well. And we're going to close with our final song this morning. And it celebrates the great shepherd. Remember Jesus said he's the good shepherd and because he's the good shepherd, do any of the sheep get away? Yeah, just, do any of the sheep get away? No. Can any slip through his hand? No. no. That's what we're gonna sing about now. It is not our, just as it is not our loveliness that drew God's love, it is not our faithfulness that holds us fast, but he himself will hold us fast.